Dr. Ben Worthington III is Professor of New Testament Interpretation at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky, rather prolific writer on New Testament subject. And in 2005, he published a book entitled The Problem with Evangelical Theology. And in this particular book, he, he attempts to set the record straight regarding theological systems that grow out of or grew out of the teachings of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the Wesley Boys. Of particular interest to me was his treatment of dispensationalism and the central teachings to that particular system. In the book, he writes, the major exegetical problems of dispensationalism have, have more to do with eschatology, ecclesiology, and even ecology, not to mention its hermeneutics and understanding of prophecy, close quote. Now, I find it interesting that he levels the normal charges that are brought against dispensationalism. For example, he says it's a new kid on the block. It teaches a secret rapture, that there are going to be human armies fighting at Armageddon, that there are two returns of Christ, and that there are two peoples of God. One particular charge that he leveled against dispensationalism is this. He writes, quote, the dispensational approach to the Bible did not arise after profound study of the Hebrew or Greek scriptures or detailed scholarly exegesis of the text, close quote. Now, factually, that's correct. One is very hard-pressed to find a treatment of the scriptures by either John Nelson Darby or Cyrus I. Schofield. The notes of the Schofield Bible were not the product of careful exegesis, but the insights of a preacher in which he simply listed as he understood the meaning of the text. Now, let me quickly say that this is not bad in and of itself. Careful translation of scripture has and will continue to lead men and women to salvation and to a life of sanctification. However, at some point, regardless of who finds the original idea in scripture, scholars must confirm the biblical soundness of such a position or show that it is false to one degree or in every degree. Not saying that you, the average layperson, you take your Bible and you meditate on the clear, clear uh, intent or communication of God's Word. 
And many of you probably have studied your Bible on your own in the quiet confines of an early morning and found good insight into the meaning of God's Word. And you should. But whatever you find, somebody somewhere ought to be able to confirm what you found through meditation with good, clear, clear exegesis. Yes, that's right. Now, after all, many people read the scriptures and discern truth, but are hard pressed to prove an exegetical basis for what they conclude. I personally see the problem as this: those who later followed, those who later followed Darby and Schofield, did not reject those aspects of the system which proved to be false. And they didn't replace them with exegetically supported facts to the case. It was not that the system was bad. There are some people who have an aversion. You say the word dispensation, and they look at you like, what? Is that in the Bible? I've never seen that word in there. I don't believe it's in there. Well, it's in there. It's usually translated as stewardship or an administration. But in the King James, it is translated dispensation. It is a biblical word. Walvert and Ryrie and Pentecost and all of those others who had, the, had better skills in dealing with the text must have known that there were weaknesses in their system and that they should correct those weaknesses least or less someone come along and show the weakness and therefore discard the whole system because of several weaknesses. Unfortunately, Worthington is of little help in the matter because he fails to appreciate the text outside of his own biases. He writes, quote, dispensationalism arose in part due to a concern about apparently unfulfilled biblical prophecy. He writes, the problem in part with dispensationalism was not only that it did not recognize that a good deal of biblical prophecy either actually had been fulfilled, though sometimes in a less than absolute literal manner, but also that a good deal of biblical prophecy was conditional in nature to begin with. And that when the conditions were not met, the fulfillment never came, close quote. Now, if you listen to that, your, your antenna should go up. You should start saying, wait, 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 wait. What, what, does, he, what does he mean when he said, though, something in a less than absolute literal manner? What does he mean when he said, thus, when the conditions were not met, the fulfillment never came? Worthington guesses, quote, lurking behind the dispensational approach was perhaps also the worry that unfulfilled prophecy might be seen as false prophecy, or worse, that unfulfilled prophecy might make God appear to not be a keeper of his word, close quote. Now what he's saying is this, he's saying the reason these people came up with this system called dispensationalism is because they thought if they didn't do something, somebody was going to read the Bible and conclude that God 
didn't tell the truth. Or that God said something was going to happen and it didn't happen and therefore God must not know as much about what he said as he claimed he said. Therefore, they came up with a system to smooth over the rough spot. Worthing argued that the predictive nature of prophecy, the fact that most predictive prophecy was given in metaphoric and poetical language, should limit dispensationalist call for literal interpretation. See, since God gave us a prophecy in metaphorical language, then you can't really expect that to happen literally. Don't ask God to be literal if he said it in a poetry way. <laughs> now I found this rather interesting. He writes, quote, these predictive prophecies were indeed meant to be taken seriously as they are referential but they were inherently figurative in character and so were not intended to be taken literally. God didn't mean that he was going to do that for literal Israel. He could do it for a metaphorical Israel. A new one. He didn't. Well, the problem is Abraham's dead. Abraham died believing he was going to do it for a literal guy. And something happened while Abraham was dead. Then Abraham was going to get up one day and figure, hey, things changed while I was dead. What do you know? <laughs> he writes, one of the main ways that dispensationalists repeatedly have violated the character of biblical prophecy is by taking poetry as prose, figurative as literal. There is, in addition, the problem of mistaking material that was fulfilled long ago in Israel or in general in biblical times as material awaiting a literal fulfillment as the Christian era nears an end. In other words, you don't look for much of what's in Ezekiel to happen like. Don't, don't leave Zechariah thinking that Zechariah had anything to say about today. Now, interesting in this book, the problem with evangelical theology, he cites as an example that Matthew 24 and 25, he writes, quote, only a minority of what is said in Matthew 24 and 25 of Mark 13 has any bearing on current or future events as we view them in the beginning of the 21st century. In other words, when you read Matthew 24 and 25, ain't much there for you. He said, a minority. In other words, now, what, don't waste your time reading it. Now, rather than summarizing his criticism of our belief. Now, if you, if you believe that there is a fundamental distinction in God's word between what are, what are called Jews and what is called the church, if you believe that there is a fundamental distinction between those two entities and that God is going to have some dealings with both of them in the future, then you are a dispensation. What it means to be a dispensation? 
Now you got a lot of other stuff thrown on, like a fella that's got hair. But basically, the fella that has hair and the fella that doesn't have hair gets down to the same thing called bald. Okay. So what I'm saying is, you know, you can you can throw a lot of frothiness on it, but basically that is that is the the gist. You believe that God is going to do something with those people called the Jews in the future, then you are dispensational. Now, according to this fellow right here, we don't know much. Sadly, pre-tribulationists and preterists have so confused many believers that they see little or no application for modern saints in a lot of the New Testament. It's unfortunate that many believers do not understand Matthew 24 and thus miss the blessing of having a clear view of the parousia of Christ and thus exist in a continual state of confusion. They just don't know. The context of Matthew 24 and 25 is a lengthy section that basically reveals the sequence of events connected with our Lord's return and the ultimate reign there upon this earth. Matthew 24 begins with a prophetic announcement by Jesus that the then standing temple in Jerusalem would soon suffer destruction. In fact, Matthew writes in chapter 24, he says, Now as Jesus was going out of the temple courts and walking away, his disciples came to show him the temple buildings. And he said to them, Do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. All will be torn down. That's interesting. In the same context, the Lord's prophetic announcement that Jerusalem and her inhabitants would suffer destruction due to their behavior in connection with his ministry. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 to 38. They, re they rejected Jesus. Jesus then rejected Jerusalem and her inhabitants and said, You will not see me until you repent. He said they wouldn't see him until they repented. It didn't say they would never see him again. <laughs> he said, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which nobody has been able to show me one iota, not one iota of proof that any Jewish person saw Jesus in any shape, form, or fashion in 70 AD. Now listen, friend, you've got to take the Bible of what it said. Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 37 38, that you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you said Jesus came in 70 AD in any shape, form, or fashion, then some Jews had to see him because he said he was not going to do that until they repent. So when you got a bunch of preterists saying, Jesus, you know, Jesus came in 70 AD and all of Matthew 24 was fulfilled. Then you ask them, where, where, who saw Jesus and where? <laughs> then it, then it's, it, you settle the question. Then you don't have to talk to them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Don't, don't fight with people. <laughs> so Jesus said, plan that. You will not see me. You're not to you. Say, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. When you do that, then you'll see me. They then said. 
So printer is weak and we just we wiped that away. <laughs> it's amazing to me how preterism is growing. Yeah. It's like the new thing. We're just excited. Oh, it answers so many questions. Yeah. Who's asking the question? Yeah. <laughs> now in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, Having reached the Mount of Olives, as the Lord said, his disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is the, of all the questions asked in the New Testament, that is the most uh, most important or significant one. It's important because when you read it, having read Mark and Luke as a prominent. John Matthew, uh, were you there? Now according to the Gospel of Mark, Matthew wasn't there. According to Mark, chapter 13, Peter, James, John, and Andrew were the only ones there to ask Jesus this question. Matthew wasn't there. So that tells me that Matthew has one of three options. Either Peter, James, John, or Andrew told him what they asked Jesus and what Jesus said. Matthew wasn't there. Or somebody wrote it down and Matthew read what they wrote down. Or the story was circulating in an oral. Oh, well, let me tell you what Jesus said the day, the night that we were with him before he was crucified. Two nights before Jesus was crucified, Peter, Jan, Peter James, Andrew, John were with Jesus. And they asked him about, you remember when he talked about the temple going to be, and they asked him a question. They said, you know, when is, when is that going to happen? And what will be the sign that that's going to happen? And Jesus answered them, you know, look out, don't let yourself be deceived because there will be many for and they went. And so maybe it was an oral tradition, and maybe Matthew heard the oral tradition, and that's how he got the information. Now, if Matthew wasn't there when they asked the original questions, then he had to get it from somebody that was there. Now, he could have got it from God. Maybe God pulled down the screen of heaven and put the movie up that night and said, okay, Matthew, watch this. (laughs) But we know he got it somehow. Now, what is important for you is this. When Matthew got ready to write his gospel, I I don't know if he got all the information maybe he got maybe he had a call board and he put up there okay this is what they said Jesus said Jesus said this Jesus said and I remember Jesus said that because I was with him that day he said that and I remember this happened or oh, I read well, so and so said this and so he got now he got his his call board full of what Jesus said and did some of what he saw and some of what he heard some of the other disciples say he did. Now he's got the whole story. 
Now Matthew is looking at that material. He said, now, okay, now, I read what Luke said about it. Speculating. Uh, and according to the, the theologians, I read what Mark said about it. I don't believe it, but that's what they said. And Matthew said, now, okay, I'm, I'm going to write my own story. I'm not going to tell it the way they told it. I'm going I'm to change a few things, because Mark wanted to talk more about him as a servant. Luke, he's more human. I really want to talk about him as a king. And how can I take this material, this storyline, all these stories, how can I take this information and prove that Jesus really was the king of the Jews? Now, I don't know if he actually did it that way or not. I don't know. Maybe the Holy Spirit just moved him along and said, okay, Matthew, I got a job I want you to do. I want you to take all you know about Jesus and so craft it so that when somebody read it, they're going to come away believing that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Maybe the Holy Spirit gave him an idea. I don't know. All I know is what we got, the final product. How he got the, how he went, I don't know. Doesn't tell us. But somewhere between what Jesus said, somewhere between what the disciples, the four that were there, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, somewhere between what they asked and what Jesus said, Matthew changed the question. I don't know why he changed them. That is, I don't know what the initial impetus was. Whether it was divine or whether it was his, God allowed him to look at that information and say, okay, now I want to tell the story, but I want to tell it this way. And the Spirit of God says, okay, it's fine. I confirm that that is the truth. There's nothing false about what you're doing. You can do it that way. I don't know how the process was. I know that the Spirit of God protected it, and what you have here is true. But when you look in your Bible at the questions that Matthew asked, he says, tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Matthew clearly, unmistakably, unambiguously changed the question. Because if you compare the questions in Mark and Luke, then the second question that Matthew has is not in Mark and it's not in Luke. Now, most of you probably are not too comfortable here because you don't go here much because this is not your arena, and I understand that. You, you read the Bible, you get the Word of God, and so you're just trying to obey. That's good. I like that. You don't care really about how, and the what, and the when, and the why. You just want to know what it says, and can I do it or not? <laughs> it's my job to dig around and get abundant. See, I, you can read the Bible, you know what it says. You, you, don't need, you don't need to know what it says in the Greek. It's right there in English. <laughs> but I like to look at the Greek because the Greek helped me to get up before you and say that what you read in English is actually what's there 
And if you're doing what it's saying in English, then you and God are going to be fine. Y'all, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right with God, but I know God's going to be fine. So when Matthew put in two questions, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, when Matthew introduced that, that second set of questions, this is important. Listen. When Matthew introduced that second question, which is totally different from Mark and Luke, it changed the purpose of why Matthew is repeating what Jesus said. This is really important. To not understand the difference in the questions asked is to miss the purpose of Matthew. Yes. So if you read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, even though it reads and sounds a lot like what's in Mark, the purpose of why Matthew repeated what Jesus said is not the same as the purpose that Mark had when he repeated some of the same thing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what that does is that that totally changes how you interpret what Matthew recorded Jesus to say. It totally changes it. And for you to read it haphazardly and say, well, yeah, I read that in Mark, uh, it means the same thing, you're going to come to a false conclusion. And that's exactly what the preterists do. See, the preterists start with the assumption that the, the questions in Mark and the questions in Luke are the exact same. And therefore, whatever follows after those questions, it has to mean the same thing, whether it's in Matthew or Mark. But in fact, ladies and gentlemen, they are absolutely blind to its meaning. Because by changing the question, Matthew changed the purpose of what Jesus said. Now you say, well, can he do that? No, he can't, he did. The issue for us is understanding how Jesus could tell a story, and that, that story could point in two different directions, the same story. Now, this is, this is very important. Matthew resumes the education of the disciples. <clears throat> and the disciples' original question clearly focused on the timing of the destruction of the temple. In, in Mark, they ask him, you know, you say you're going to tear down the temple? When? When is this going to happen? And what will, what will be, how do we know that's going to happen? Matthew came along and said, nah, I'm not interested in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. It's going to happen, it's fine, but I'm not interested. I'm interested in your return. And so Matthew took what Jesus said and transformed it out of the context of the 7th AD destruction of Jerusalem and put it in the context of the parousia of Christ. Yes. Now there are three things in this passage that unequivocally prove that 
And the next time a pre-tribber comes to you and says that the Olivet Discourse does not apply to the church, I'm going to give you three silver bullets that will blow them out of the water. The only problem is they don't know the bullets and they don't know the city. They'll sit there looking at you, arguing you like Mr. Ed talking to Wilbur. Yeah, hey, Wilbur. Now, Matthew says, he asked the question. The first question, same question that the other three asked. First question. Second question, though, totally different. Totally different focus. What will be the sign of your parousia? P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. Now, you don't see it in the Greek, uh, in the English. It just simply says, what is the sign of your coming? And so you just read that word coming in English, and so you just keep going like all the other comings in the New Testament. But if you look down under that, you'll find out that there are different words for coming in the New Testament. And they, and they have different meanings and usages. And the one that's here is the word P-R-O-U-S-I-A. Now what's even more significant is this. Silver bullet number one. This word coming is consistently used throughout the New Testament to apply to the coming of Christ for his own. So you go and you, and you read the Apostle Paul, and Paul has got it all in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, he's got it in there, he's got it in Romans, he's got it in, in uh, his letter to, uh, um, to, I said to Th- Thessalonians. So, so, now wait, 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 wait. What is Matthew doing using Paul's number one word for Christ returning to get his own? What is he doing using that special word in Matthew 24 that's supposed to have nothing to do with Christ's return for his own? Now, the Gospel of Matthew is written after the writings of Paul. That's important. So now here the word's been the word's been making around. It's been going around through the community. Paul has used it. James has used it. James, of course, is the first letter written in the New Testament, in my opinion. James used it first. Because James is the first one. There's an argument between James and Galatians, but I believe James was the first book actually written in the New Testament. And James uses the word parousia to describe the return of Friday. It's used in, in John. It's used in 1 John to describe the return of Christ. So James uses it. John uses it. Paul uses it. Peter uses it in his writings to describe Christ coming for his own. So now look at here. We got James used it first. Who was at the meeting? 
James, John, and Andrew. They were at the meeting. <laughs> Who used the word? Peter. James used it first. Then we have Peter, Paul, and John. Who wrote last? Matthew. So you mean to tell me that the primary word that these guys are using to describe Christ coming for his own is the same word that Matthew, after they had already written, decided he's going to look around and find him a word. Now what word can I find that will do that for me? And he goes out and grabs Parashia and says, I'm going to use this one. Teacher brother. Mark didn't use it. Luke didn't use it. Matthew used it four times in one chapter and nobody else uses it in the same places. In the other gospel, they use some other word. See, Matthew, what are you trying to tell us? Are you leaving clues in the text? <laughs> the fact that Matthew not only changed the second question, but uses this word P-R-O-U-S-I-A to build that second question is like a red light flashing. Yes. Matthew is telling you, hey, listen, this originally was not given to apply to the church, but in order that you won't miss it, let me put some words in here that will make you red light, red light, red light. See, I was reading this in Mark, and it was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And all of a sudden, I go over, over to Matthew, he changed his question and put a word in there that was a signal to me. Yes, sir. Telling me when you read this now, this, this is not talking about 70 AD, this is talking about when he comes for his own. So, well, number one, he changed the question. Matthew changed the question. Listen. You gotta explain. Listen, whoever is arguing with you has got to be able to explain to you why Matthew changed that question. Because for Matthew to change that question meant that he had a reason. There was something that he was doing by changing the question because they did not ask him that. That is not the question the disciples asked. They asked him, when will these things be and what will be when will these things happen? That's the question they ask. Matthew changed the question, which means he's introducing a whole new topic. That's important. That's simple number. Simple number two, he used the word parousia. A word that had already established itself as a key term to describe Christ coming for his own. This is very important. Douglas are a higher right. The key to Matthew's understanding of the entire discourse is provided by the critical changes he makes in the material taken over from Mark at Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. <laughs> in the succeeding discourse, the destruction of Jerusalem is forgotten. Attention is focused rather on Jesus' parousia, the events or signs leading up to it, and the necessity of preparing oneself spiritually and ethically. See, this man understands it. He understands that when Matthew changed that question, it changed the whole purpose of what Matthew was going to write, and he put it squarely in the lap of Christians waiting for his return. Simple number one, he changed the question. Simple number two, 
he uses the term parousia, silver bullet number three. Now, this is the hardest one to explain. Um, the Greek language is a very peculiar language. It, when, when you really understand how the language works, you see why the New Testament is written in, in Greek. It's a great language for it to be written in. There is a special Greek construction the way we the way you put the language together. We do it all the time. We, don't, we just don't talk about it. A lot of us can use English, but we can't tell you how we use it. We just know it sounds right, must be right. Some of us use it incorrectly, but it sounds right, and we think it is right, but it's not right. I do it all the time. He says, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, that little word and there is very important because it's connecting two equal pieces. But what's most important is the word the. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, the way it's translated in English is not the way it's actually written in Greek. But the English translation is giving you what it's supposed to mean. And so what, what you actually have here is one article, the, and it goes, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What is the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? Now, the reason that's important is because in the Greek language, those two phrases, they have some kind of relationship to each other. And you've got to figure out what kind of relationship these two have with each other. Now, in Greek, it can have one of four possibilities. The sign of your coming and the end of the age, those two phrases can mean one of four things. It can mean, number one, that they are the same thing. In other words, the sign of your coming and the end of the age is the same thing. Or it can mean that they are two totally opposite things. Or number three, A, the first one, is a subset of B, the second one. Or four, the B part can be a subset of the A part. So A can be a subset of B, or B can be a subset of A. Very confused now. Looking in space, needing sleep, confusion, doubts, frustration, <laughs> anxiety. <laughs> it, A and B can be equal. A is not equal to B. A is a subset of B. Or B is a subset of A. For you math people. You got it? Huh? One more time. A, write it down. A is equal to B. Okay, that's an equal sign. 
A is not equal, cross line to equal, to B. Okay? A is a subset of B. Okay? In other words, B is the big thing and A comes under it. Or, B is the big thing and A comes under it. Now, those are the possibilities of that phrase. You see, in English, it just seems to me, it says, you know, it's, it's, what's the sign of becoming at the end of the age? I got it. <laughs> well, my job is to look down under there and mess around under there and find out all that. <laughs> and figure out how I can tell you without confusing you and it causing you great mental gymnastics. <laughs> now, the beauty of this is this. Theologically, it has to make sense. Because of the one article, we know that they have to be, there's some relationship between. So A is not equal to B, we can throw that out. Okay, we know that there's some kind of relationship because you only use one, one V. It's like if you were going to buy groceries and you only got one dollar, everything you buy is going to have to be covered by that dollar. <laughs> Anything that you get that ain't covered by that dollar means, guess what? You go into jail or you stole it. So, okay, so basically, you've got to be on it, you've got to be covered by it, okay? So, now, the fact that he said, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age would tell you that they're not the same. We don't normally do that. They did either. Paul wasn't insane. Matthew wasn't insane. So, the issue is is A a subset of B or is B a subset of A? In other words, is the parousia the big thing? and a piece of it is going to be the end of the age. Or, is the end of the age a big deal of which the parousia of Christ is going to be one piece of it? That's the issue. Okay? So can we talk, when we talk about the end of the age, maybe it means that Jesus is going to come, he's going to punish the wicked, he's going to separate, he's going to, I mean, is there like four or five different things that come underneath what they call end of the age, or is the parousia of Christ, this big event that have all these little things that happen under it, and one of them is called the end of the age. That's the decision you have to make. Now, when you're, when you're talking about this, you say, boy, this, this is over my head, I just don't understand. Well, it's like this. When Matthew asked the question, Matthew was signaling red light, caution, caution, caution. The end of the age is one piece of the parousia of Christ. It's the end of it. So when he said, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He was saying, listen, one sign is going to serve two purposes. It's going to, one, it's going to signal one event which is going to then lead right into another one. And they are most important to Christians. The reason Matthew's asked the question is because it's important to Christians. He wasn't asked questions because he was interested in the Jews, he was interested in Christians. He said, listen, we need to know when Christ is going to come for us. And we need to know what's going to be going on so we can get ready. 
they'll be caught not be ready or mean you're going to be in trouble. And the whole rest of chapter 24 and 25 is talking about what you need to do to be ready yeah, when he comes. Yeah, that's right. The whole chapter is, listen, you don't want to be bridegroom, so you, you run out of oil, that's not good. You'll get caught and you won't like what you get. Hey, Bob, let's see. So, so Matthew said, now let me spell it out for you. And so the Olivet Discourse, ladies and gentlemen, is a road map for Christians so you won't be deceived by the wicked, nor will you be unprepared by the suddenness with which the transformation is going to occur. Yep. It's the transformation that's going to occur suddenly, not his appearing. His appearing is not going to be sudden. He, he just got to tell you, hey, by the way, when you see this, eh, don't worry. No problem. When you see this, run. <laughs> because then this, 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 and this, and then when all that, he said, now then, lift up your eyes because your redemption draw it. See, Matthew could have done, he could not have done a better job in signaling to you that Matthew 24 applies to the church. Right. He changed the question. He used a word that is totally inappropriate in that chapter. There is no reason to use that term unless you are trying to make the point that the text is applicable to the church. There is no other reason to use that word. Amen. And then number three, you put it in this unique Greek construction where you had to go and look for, now does he mean A is equal to B, A is not equal to B, A is a subset of B, or is B a subset of A? Matthew said, couldn't you just do what? Matthew, why'd you do that? <laughs> I don't got second grade education, and I had to work with that. So don't be messing with me. <laughs> Matthew's reformulated question of what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age fosters more questions than probably the answer. But there are two very important questions. Number one, that the coming, the parousia, and the end of the age are intimately connected with one another, and Christians need to know it. Yes, that's right. Unfortunately for us, since we're not grammar experts, we tend to miss the significance of that. But I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that you're going to discover that down underneath the plain, literal, perspicuity of Scripture is the Greek language, <clears throat> biblical theology, and discourse analysis. And those instruments <clears throat> confirm what the plain sense says. You're not going to find something that's not there. All you're going to do is confirm what is there by looking at the mechanics of the writing. And the Holy Spirit, in his wisdom, yes. employs some mechanics so that those who are able to study and learn can come along beneath you and say, yes, sir, the reason you can believe that so dogmatically is because of A, B, C, and D. Bear it underneath. No have to know it. But if somebody says it's not true, he's giving you extra ammunition just so that you can confound. Right. Let's do it. It is beautiful. 
Father, I pray tonight as we study your word that we will be students of your word. And Father, I want to thank you tonight that nothing, nothing that is underneath the plain sense of your word contradicts it. It in fact confirms that the plain sense is the right sense and the mechanics confirm that it is true. I pray tonight, Father, as there are men and women in this room who will go back to churches and neighbors and friends who simply will not believe. And they will find a lot of excuses. Well, who's who famous that believes it? As if to be famous proves truth. Or they will suggest that what well, is new? I've never heard it before. As if they are the arbiters of truth by what they know, rather than your word. I pray that the men and women in this room, when they are confronted by the skepticism of their friends, <coughs> will in a quiet, dispassionate way <coughs> show the light that is buried in your word. The layers of your truth build truth. They do not build contradictions. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.